0: to Iran after Iranian forces seized two Greek flagged vessels in the Persian Gulf. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
1: Before doing a COVID-19 rapid antigen test, read the user guide carefully and follow each step as instructed. First, prepare a clean surface and wash your hands. For a nasal swab, insert the swab into your nostrils and rub it against the walls of each nostril several times as instructed. Submerge the swab tip fully into the buffer solution and stir. Squeeze droplets of the solution slowly into the well of the test device afterwards. Wait for the time specified in the user guide and read the result. Results taken beyond the time limit will be invalid. When finished, dispose of all parts of the test kit properly. If only the C-line is present, the test result is negative. If both the C-line and the T-line are present, the test result is positive. In which case, you have to take a photo of the result and report it within 24 hours via the declaration system of the Department of Health. Do the test often by yourself. It helps you to detect any infection and receive treatment as soon as possible to protect yourself and others around you. Do the test, protect yourself and others.
2: Good morning and welcome to The Week on 3. I'm Kristi Lai. Hope you're having a wonderful start to your weekend. Let's jump right into our program. I have a great lineup of interviews for you today. On Monday's Morning Brew, Phil spoke to Indian author, columnist, and editor Amrita Shah, an authority on India's media history. She was also founding editor of El India and published her book, Telly Gillantine: How Television Changed India in 2019. Her biography of Ahmedabad, India's seventh-largest city is regarded as an essential reading for its insights into contemporary India. When asked about her journey as founding editor of El India, here was what she said.
3: Well, you know, L came much later. Yes. I, I think that this this moment I'm talking about was sometime in the early eighties, nineteen eighties, when India, um, you know, the middle class in India was fairly kind of small and it was growing. Yeah, and uh, I think these magazines, as I said, they touched a kind of uh, um, a little part of India that was uh, westernized and you know probably had a little more money to spend on the products that were advertised. Very few. Mm. Uh, but then, then in 1991, India, India, you know, kind of, uh, went in for social, uh, economic liberalization and the magazines came post then. So L was 96 we launched. Mm. And, um, and in fact, foreign magazines are not yet allowed in actually at that point. Okay. And I'm not quite sure under what, uh, agreement and you know, what, The mechanics of it was, but only Cosmopolitan and L came in at that point Mm. because I think there was some 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 degree of permission allowed for ownership and uh, the franchise and so on. And now, of course, you have everything. You have um, many of many more uh, foreign magazines setting up. So the L moment is, I can see. I don't think I know that L is a very specific magazine. It has a very specific um, how to say branding position in the world. but, uh, so, you know, it's not woke for instance. Vogue is very upper end. Yes. Uh, while Cosmopolitan is not. It's seen as, so it, L would be something for kind of the more, the, the girl next door, the girl who's sort of, uh, I'd say, more lively, more intelligent, but not necessarily into haute couture, uh, or maybe just once in a while sort of, you know, so that's Yes, the, yes, yes, uh, yes. Yeah. But in India when it all started up in the late nineties, there were no those those distinctions, didn't really apply. We were still too the middle class was still too uh unformed, you could say. I mean it's not it wasn't yet so sort of segmented. Mm. And um, so it was just, you know, you could either afford to buy a magazine oh, that cost fifty rupees in that day. Uh, the, it would be a dollar at that time. But you know, it's quite a bit to just spend on a magazine. Um uh, and, um, it's small
0: disposable guess- money, but it's still disposable money that not everybody has by a long way, right?
3: Yes, yes. So I don't think that it was. But, you know, people did have, I remember when we started out, it pretty quickly got a, a, a wide circulation. So I guess people did have some money and we had advertisers, which, again, is a big
0: yes. is a
3: big part of this. You know, whether you have products that have the money to, to advertise, etc. Was this a groundbreaker, do you think? Uh, do you mean L itself? Yeah, yeah, or? yeah L India. Um, I, You know, I think L, yes, it, it, I'd say in a limited way because what we did, you know, you suddenly had this splash of beautifully produced magazine. Uh, glossy paper, great photographs, uh, good writing, um, great covers and I had a certain attitude, I think, when we started. Uh and I think that that did um kind of it was quite a um you could say a groundbreaker, but I'd say in a very a small way because um what was more important was the commercial background, the economic background. Uh, whether a magazine like that could actually exist. Yeah. You could actually have uh, products that were advertised there. You could you know you could have designers, suddenly not not um not something that a few people in the country sort of saw, but suddenly it was um uh, every month you you had their yes. products sort of okay. you know. So yeah, it it represented something groundbreaking. That that was the times of, you know, in which it was born.
0: I mean, people, it's so funny now that I wonder what, you know, the the role of a, of a magazine per se, everybody's sitting on the train or the bus or whatever these days with their phones, and I always think mm-hmm. um, they're not always wasting time. It's like a doodle. It's a mental doodle. They're reading articles and stuff like this. Do you think that's taken the place of the glossy magazine? Or or, or is there still uh, a healthy life for these things?
3: In fact, uh, I, I think, you know, I'm a magazine, I was I was very much a magazine person. I came into journalism wanting to write sort of good features for magazines, but serious features. Yeah. But also have fun, uh, you know, and also have fun and I like the visuals, et cetera. But I, I'm afraid, in, in my view, all that has died out or dying out, certainly. Is, is that inevitable, you, do you think? Well, sure, you know, technology changes everything. And uh, but I, I, so of course, you know, right now, I think that even though print uh, is surprisingly robust in India compared to other places. Yeah. Um, and we do have magazines. Uh, they, they died out for a while. I mean, in the sort of, let's say, late 80s, early 90s, they actually disappeared. Okay. Many magazines shut down because of television.
2: I'm Rita Shah. Indian author, columnist, and editor on The Morning Brew. If you're still coming up with your weekend plans, and happen to enjoy going to art galleries and museums, but you've been to almost all of them, and even the New Amplus Museum, I might have just a thing for you. The Oil Street Art Space in North Point just reopened its doors, and is housed in the former clubhouse of the Royal Hong Kong Yacht Club, which opened its doors in 1908. The red bricks grade 2 historical building was renamed the Oil Street Art Space, which opened to the public in 2013. An expansion project was introduced in 2019, in which an adjacent outdoor space of over 3,000 square feet will be integrated with its original premises. To share with us his thoughts on a new expansion is John Batten, president of the International Associate of Art Critics Hong Kong.
4: Um, no, it's been barricaded for uh, about three years. But I actually I was fascinated to 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 visit it um, a few weeks ago. When I looked around and I I put my camera over the the barricade to to try and get a a, a little bit of a closer look at what's going on. I, I've been aware of it for a, a little while, and it's a um, the history. It is quite interesting. The the old red brick buildings are the original uh, Hong Kong Yacht Club and the the waterfront was um, in front of the, the yacht club. So when you visit, the, the red brick buildings are still there and they are um, have been converted into a, uh, a very good um, um, exhibition space for contemporary art. And then there's been a, a rising use of the space... They have a sort of extension there with a kitchen, and people uh, can cook and do community days and the elderly people can sit in the in the area and so there, I think there was a rising um, uh, consciousness of of the oil Street um, buildings those old buildings to be something a little bit more so it, it, it's a little bit complex um, the the space um, in front of those red brick buildings was was um, reclaimed after the war, and the government services uh, supply depot were, was put there. And you know, this was a, a place where all the um, all the things that built Hong Kong arrived and then were, were distributed. So, for example, the the um, Queen's Pier um, uh, reclamation, the the building of City Hall, the central government offices. You know, all the goods that would have been sourced uh, to build those buildings would have gone through that site. And then in the uh, late 1990s, the government decided to sell the site and it rented them out very cheaply. And there was a period for 18 months when the uh, burgeoning art groups here, including Artists Commune, 1A Space, Videotage were able to find space in, in these cheap warehouse accommodation um, to do programs and that's why the the, the art centre and the old yacht club buildings is there because of that history of the late nineteen nineties. And when the government sold the site to Chen Kong who have built a hotel and residential complex on the waterfront, which is a few few meters away from um, uh, the area we're talking about um, part of the site was to be added as a park to make the um, to complement the, the the Red Brick Yacht Club historic buildings and I've been watching this and I've, I've asked um, uh, about it and there is now a new um, square block building and I was quite shocked because the building completely in glass And I thought, well, this is a new building, it's a new um, art exhibition space, but why is it completely in glass? It's almost entirely um, uh, composing of walls with glass because, you know, an art space needs um, solid walls as well. And then to one side of it is is like a, um, a little square Um, which which looks like a zen garden. It's got uh, white pebbles, um, and it's quite large. And I thought, well, why would you want to do that there? It's on Electric Road, which is a very, very noisy road. Why would you want to put a big, open, white pebbled space there? And so, you know, in typical government fashion, um, it it sort of evolved in a way which has had no community input. And I when I questioned about the, the design of this glass wall artist space, the, the staff um, you know, kindly revealed that, um, in fact, they've had no consultation with the architectural services department. The architects, the architects themselves have designed this with no consultation.
0: So, so
4: I think there's some disappointing parts mm-hmm. to this.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. It does sound like you have a mixed feelings on it.
4: Yes, but the the good part is that it's now been handed to the the staff at the at Oil Street, the curators there, and I've always been impressed with what they do there. And so, the one part it's bad. You know, typical, you know, top down approach. To, to building something. You know, Hong Kong loves building because it's easy and they don't want to talk to people. They don't want to talk to other people in, in, in the community to try and get it better than it should be. But the good part is that the program programming will probably be quite good. And I think they've got a, uh, an interesting program that, they've, that opens today. Um, and, I you know, I don't know much about it, but I think it's mainly... Um, uh, overseas artists, and this is to, to celebrate the 25th anniversary. And I think the, the programming, the arts programming, what they do there is actually quite a good. So now that it's been handed over to the staff, the staff will have to make do with what they've been given, including this empty white space. I mean, it's pebbles. You can't walk on this. You know, it's very uncomfortable. You know, it would be much better to put a, a basketball court there or, or grass where people can sit. So you know, I think maybe over time it can it can adjust into something better. But so there are two aspects. One is the initial thing of, oh, you know, let's build something when we don't talk to anyone. But now that it's there, it could expand into a, an even better, a better program than than they do.
2: That was John Batten speaking to Samantha Butler on Hong Kong Today. Since 2015, Community Business launched the Hong Kong LGBT Workplace Inclusion Index, which is the first of its kind in Asia, along with related awards. This initiative was a huge success, propelling LGBT inclusion into Hong Kong. In 2022, they launched the brand new Community Business Awards, offering opportunities for businesses and brands to showcase their commitment to building responsible leadership, tackling workplace inequality, Ensuring employee well being and promoting social inclusion. On Friday's Money Talk, Peter Lewis invited Community Businesses CEO Peter Sargent to talk more about it.
5: Absolutely. And it felt like a, a good juncture for us to do this. We're 20 years old as a nonprofit here in Hong Kong next year. And we're incredibly proud of our roots here in Hong Kong. But it felt like it was time to bust out of the silos that we'd created within the organisation. We were doing diversity and inclusion awards in India, employee wellbeing awards in Hong Kong and LGBT inclusion awards in Hong Kong. But we recognise that each of us are far more intersectional than that. We're, we're more than just a label. And so what mm. we wanted to do was give companies the opportunity to celebrate, particularly at a time when they haven't been able to celebrate. And so um, we work with, uh, well, 60 member companies. We probably have twice that in terms of other companies that interact with us across the region. And so it was really time to sort of look beyond our borders here in Hong Kong um, and give folks the opportunity to, to showcase the great work that they do. We work with passionate individuals, across industries that focus on diversity and inclusion and employee well-being. Mm -hmm. But they're often busy working away within their organisations and don't get the opportunity
6: to talk about the fabulous work that they do. One one of the things that I've noticed in the LGBTQ Awards in the past, which were great, great awards... Mm but they tend to be dominated every year by the same companies and (laughs) mainly from uh, the finance and the law firms. Is that changing? Are we seeing signs of that broadening out and different sectors getting involved and different companies?
5: Yeah, I mean, I I, I honestly think um, that post uh, George Floyd and what happened uh, with the terrible situations in the US, um, any CEO worth their salt within an organisation looked... Um, to their teams and, and, and said, w- what do we do about this? What do we say about this? How do mm. we how do we interpret that for the markets that we're operating in? And a lot of them didn't have people working in the diversity and inclusion roles that some of the law firms and banks had. And so there's been a plethora of hiring into that space and there's mm. been an increased consciousness. But with that has, be- has, has become all these increased... Um, passions and and conversations that are happening in the region and so the objective of the award is really to try and surface that And so we had applications from Indonesia, from markets um, such as Hong Kong and China and Sri Lanka. And we surfaced um, results from companies that that would really surprise some people. So one of our winners was a tea plantation in Sri Lanka. Mm. And I have to say, out of all the applications we had, and we had hundreds, um, this one was really quite detailed and the information they put into that was just
6: superb. And and I I would argue world class. So how do you select these finalists? Mm. Do they literally stand out you or is there a process that you go so through? I, to- I think first and foremost,
5: I have to thank our sponsors because without them, we wouldn't be able to do this. And mm. so applying for an award and nominating someone is free of charge. If you're sponsoring the award, you can't apply for that award. Okay. So we make, we make sure that w- what we do is companies that, that are really quite advanced in this have the opportunity to sponsor an award and pay it forward. And so then, when we get the nominations, we go we call this the most rig- rigorous process um of awards in asia, and it truly is and I think you know my team will, will will attest to that given the amount of work they've put into this over the last few months. but every single nomination goes past three sets of eyes at community business who judge those separately, those three people then come together and look at the scoring that they've they've done and level the scoring so then up through those scorings, we get three or four shortlisted nominations and every one of those goes through a panel discussion where they present to the panel which will include two community business representatives, one expert judge, depending on the topic of that Mm. award, and one sponsor judge. The sponsor gets to put someone forward as well so they can ensure that the process is working effectively. So if you look at, we had 16 awards. We had 17. We chose not to run one because uh, there wasn't sufficient nominations and we didn't feel it was fair to to judge in a small pool of nominees. So if 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 an award reaches a certain threshold, um it'll go to the panel judge and sixteen awards, three or four shortlisted um, candidates for each. that's fifty judging panels that we yeah, hosted each of forty five minutes each so a lot of a lot of
6: work and rigor that goes into that. So give me a couple of examples of what sort of award categories you have this year
5: yes so so so, so the one I spoke about the tea plantation that was a work life harmony award. Um, we had um, some of our normal awards like the LGBT ally in asia award and actually that was a great example um, we had a clinician that works for um a, a, a non-profit here in hong kong and she's told us since then that she's seen a massive increase in, in, in inquiries about work uh, for their company as, as a result oh, okay. of the profile we've given them through this award um we've had dni champions of change in india um, and what's interesting is when we look at the nominees, we've had people with disabilities, we've had trans people, we've had women leaders that perhaps we didn't know about before. So, so what, what I was really quite excited about is that through the people that, that were shortlisted and won these awards, we were able to profile uh, women leaders that perhaps people haven't heard of before because they're not uh, so visible in the community
6: so um explain a little bit about why diversity and inclusion is important because this has been a difficult year for many many businesses Mm. in hong kong and across the region is there evidence that firms that do incorporate principles of diversity and inclusion look after their employees um, are emerging from the pandemic in better shape
5: well i i think um we 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 know that um Smaller communities uh, who are less represented have probably suffered more through the pandemic. Um, So certainly those companies um, that have done well are the ones that have actually doubled their efforts during the pandemic. I think some organisations felt it was too much of a burden to to focus on certain things. But um, I think the majority of companies that we work with and we see across the region doing good things in this field have actually doubled down. Mm. Um, And so they've moved a lot of things towards uh, the virtual space, and they've communicated differently. Um, And so, yeah, absolutely, not only um, in terms of shareholder return, but just being the place that people want to come to work. Um, And I think particularly when you look at next generation coming, coming out of colleges and schools, they expect companies to have this fixed. And so it's no longer um, something that's nice to do. It's a requirement for job applicants that companies have a good level of understanding around diversity and inclusion and employee well-being.
2: Peter Sargent, the CEO of Community Business on Friday's Money Talk. To end today's week on three, I'll leave you with Steve James. Who will take you back to that day in music? This time, it's the Rolling Stones. Take care and have a great day. I'm Christy Lai.
4: Of all the gin joints and all the
0: towns in all the world. You
2: have got to be kidding me. She
0: walks into mine. The Steve James Tuesday afternoon drive. Yeah, life is hilariously cruel.
4: may be roaring with the boom like a zoom do a wee, but there
0: isn't any roar when the clock strikes four. Stop. Everything stops for tea. Here we go. Oh, they may be playing football. They may be, and the crowd is yelling, kill the, the referee. referee. But no matter what the score, when the clock strikes four, oh.
3: everything stops for
0: tea.
4: Tuesday afternoon tea break this week featuring the fact that uh, this day. 1968, the Rolling Stones released their single Jumpin' Jack Flash in the UK. The track gave them their seventh UK number one.